Hi, it's John, and today I'm looking at the books of Philippians and Colossians. And in your Come Follow Me study, you have the whole manual. I'm just going to point out some things that, that I really liked about this. In fact, I just want to go right away to chapter 2, where it says in verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. <laughs> There's so many stories about that, of people who see a countenance and think, why, you look different, you look like, you look so bright. One of the things that, stories that I remember from President Faust, kind of just the way he began a talk, let's see, this was in September 5th of 1993, one of those speeches the way he began this talk kind of sounds like that shining as lights in the world type metaphor. He said, It is a pleasure to be with all of you special young people this evening. I feel deeply my responsibility to teach you sacred things. I appreciate the fact that as I teach you, I'm standing on holy ground. Then listen to this. I'm well aware that the world in which you live will be vastly different from the one I have known. Values have changed. Basic decency and respect for good things are eroding. A moral blackness is settling in. You are, in many ways, the hope of the future, and I remind you that valuable diamonds shine better against a dark background. Isn't that a nice way to put it? Diamonds shine better against a dark background. You are shining as lights in the world, as Paul might say. And you've probably been to a jewelry store and you've probably noticed that they like to display diamonds against black velvet. You've probably also noticed they put some very focused high wattage lights up above that shine on those diamonds and just make them sparkle and leap out at you. But if they turned off that light, uh, the diamonds don't sparkle by themselves. So it's kind of a fun metaphor to think about that we are reflecting a light from above. When Paul is telling them, you shine as lights in the world, I think that's what he's saying. I believe that when people really have the light of Christ in them, it begins to show. It even begins to show in their, in their face. And there's stories about that that I love to share that I've shared before. Interesting, as he goes on, I think I'm going to go Next to, to chapter 4, there are some beautiful things in here. I have often, you've heard me joke, and I actually did a, a, a talk on CD back in the day with Desert Book about Article of Faith 13, and in that Article of Faith, I took that, just took that Article of Faith apart and talked about it. In that Article of Faith, Joseph Smith says, Indeed, we may say we follow the admonition of Paul. Well, what is the admonition of Paul? It's right here. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So, in the article of faith, we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and doing good to all men. Whatsoever things are pure, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. The article of faith says, Paul says, think on these things. And I like both of those phrases. 
I think what we allow to rest in our minds, I think Mormon says to his son Moroni at the end of the Book of Mormon, may Christ and showing his body to our fathers, let these things rest in your mind forever because they're so much bad. What are you allowing to rest in your mind? And Paul says here, think on these things. I also like that this is a list of do's. It isn't a list of don'ts, which we sometimes have and which are helpful. But this is saying, well, if I'm not supposed to think about that, what do I think about? Well, is it honest, pure, just, lovely, virtuous, of good report, praiseworthy? Think on those kinds of things. So I like that, that phrase a lot. The admonition of Paul a lot. Now, continuing, verse 11 is one that you could give an entire hour-long talk about. Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. That is a hard lesson to learn. And Paul says, I have learned. This wasn't an instant thing. I think he learned it over time. I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I think I said on the Follow Him podcast, there are entire floors of buildings on Madison Avenue, marketing, advertising, that are trying to convince us that we're missing something and we shouldn't be content. And if we would just buy this or buy that, then maybe we could be more happy and more content. I like what uh, Mary Ellen Edmonds said. Mary Ellen Edmonds was in the General Relief Society presidency years ago. She said, happiness consists, no, actually, she quoted William George Jordan first, who said, happiness consists not of having, but of being, not of possessing, but of enjoying. It is the warm glow of a heart at peace with itself. Now, here's Mary Ellen Edmonds talking. Happiness is a state of being contented or satisfied, but sometimes it's hard to be content and satisfied to have enough. There will always be a newer watch, a more powerful computer, a fancier car, or closet organizer. But you can never get enough of what you don't need, because what you don't need never satisfies. And then this phrase that you've heard a lot of different versions of it, she said, we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like who don't come over and get impressed anyway. <laughs> we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we, who don't come over and get impressed anyway. What an art to be able to learn to be content. And that's what Paul says, I've learned to be content. I think I mentioned on the Follow Him podcast that I had read a book years ago called Fine Old High Priests and a uh, young adult, it was just fiction, was getting advice from one of his grandparents. And I think it was his grandmother who told him, marry someone who knows how to be content. Wow, what a, what a statement there. In your February 2011 ensign, there's an article called Learning to Be Content. And this was by Brianna Sampson. She said, Satan is not to be underestimated. He can make a rich man miserable and a poor man proud. Money and material possessions should have little bearing on our happiness and attitudes, yet Satan can often convince us otherwise. I realized this was a problem for me after my husband and I purchased our first home. A short time after we moved in, my initial excitement faded as I began to see the flaws of our home and feel discontented. 
Many of our friends had much larger homes decorated in such appealing styles as to make our homes seem small, plain, and wanting. I found myself making comparisons and feeling that I came up short. During one of my more intense periods of disgruntlement, Brianna Sampson said, a couple in our ward invited us to join them for family home evening. When we arrived at their home, I felt the anticipated pang of jealousy at the sight of their large new home in which little had been foregone. What I had not anticipated was the conversation I had with the wife that evening. She mentioned their unhappiness with their home and their desire to find something a little bigger to better suit their needs. I was astounded. How could someone who had so much not realize how lucky she was? I would give anything to live in this gorgeous home, and she was unhappy. How could she not appreciate what she had? As I later reflected on her comments and my reaction in turn, the Spirit gave me a very profound insight. I was no different from my friend whom I so strongly envied. We had been blessed to purchase a beautiful house that many, many people would be overjoyed to live in. The problem was not with the house. It was with me. Instead of focusing on what I had, I could only see what I lacked. Instead of gratitude for blessings, I chose jealousy and greed. From the moment that I realized whose influence had been tainting my perspective, I made the choice to never let Satan sway me in such a worldly direction again. I realized then, as I do now, that if we cannot be contented with our current lives and possessions, then we are feeding an appetite that no amount of money will ever satiate. Jacob addressed this desire for wealth in his day by counseling us to seek first the kingdom of God and a hope in Christ. Then if we are blessed with riches, we will use them to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. See Jacob chapter 2 verses 18 and 19. I know that as we keep our hearts full of gratitude and our desires turn to God, we will be blessed with a sense of peace and contentment unknown to those of the world. And that is something money can never buy. Great little article. Let me say that last line again. We will be blessed with a sense. I know that as we keep our hearts full of gratitude and desires. I know that as we keep our hearts full of gratitude and our desires turn to God, we will be blessed with a sense of peace and contentment unknown to those of the world, and that is something money can never buy. To me, this is one of Paul's most powerful lessons. I've learned, in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. And Paul had, as we all know, medical problems. He spoke of his thorn in the flesh often, and was often in prison. What does he tell us? He was 40 times saved one, five different times. Wow, he went through a lot but he learned to be content. Boy, that's, that's something where I'm still looking to learn that. I'm not there yet. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That perspective is another one. I love that the, self, the self-help libraries of the world start out more with, I can do all things. But Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And when I was a bishop, I used to have a little, what do they call them? Not a lanyard, but the wrist thing, a wristband that you wear, the flexible plastic ones, to remind me of that when I didn't feel big enough for my calling. Well, 
I'm not big enough for it, but through Christ, I get help and I can do those things. Let's look at the book of Colossians. There's something that I thought was such an amazing phrase here in Colossians chapter 2. And even in the synopsis, there's some real poetry here. The synopsis to Colossians chapter 2 says, The fullness of God of the Godhead dwells in Christ. Beware of being deceived by the traditions of men. And then this, the handwriting against us was nailed to the cross of Christ. Now, what does that mean? When we go to verse 14 of Colossians, Colossians, however you say that, chapter 2 verse 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Which I I thought, oh, wow. What does this mean? Let me share something from a book called Making Sense of the New Testament. Paul and Timothy use a metaphor of a condemned man who carries a placard listing his crimes to the site of execution. When the prisoner arrives at the site, the soldiers take the sign and nail it to the cross. In this context, Paul and Timothy say that Jesus has forgiven you, blotting out the handwriting that was against us and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. What a metaphor. So that's what I wrote in my margin. The condemned had their crimes written on a placard. Jesus' placard said, King of the Jews. The Pharisees wanted it to say he said he was the King of the Jews. But who was it? Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So it actually became more of a label, the King of the Jews, than crimes. But our sins were, in a way, nailed to the cross. There's a hymn called It Is Well With My Soul, which has become one of my favorites that the Tabernacle Choir sings. And when I I read this verse, it reminded me of one of the lines in that hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. That sounds like they, the person who wrote these lyrics may have got them. That idea from Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. The handwriting ordinances against us, which was contrary to us, took it out of the way, nailing it, in other words, our sins, to the cross. Wow. So that's a beautiful phrase and helps us remember the atonement, and also helps us understand why there was writing above Jesus' cross. Well, the condemned had that there as a reminder. This is what this person did. But with Jesus, it was who he was. This is the king of the Jews. Going backwards in Colossians chapter 2, just a little bit, I had marked all of the times the phrase, in him, appears. Verse 6, As ye therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. I put in my margin, Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, verse 23. Learn of me, listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit, and ye shall have peace in me. 
verse 7 of Colossians 2, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Verse 10, ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And verse 12 has this symbol of baptism being like, like a death, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So, everything we do, we try to do with Him, in Him, with Christ in mind, and in Him. It reminds me, of course, of Moroni 10.32, come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. None of this works unless it's in Him. Back to Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Well, I hope this has been helpful today, and I'm excited to talk to you next time.